Alright, it is my joy to bring God's Word to you this morning. We are continuing in the Gospel of Mark. For those of you who haven't been with us regularly, we are working our way section by section through the Gospel of Mark. And we find ourselves in Mark chapter 2 this morning. In our sermon two weeks ago, we saw Jesus' authority highlighted. We saw that he taught the scriptures with a level of authority that stood out as utterly unique, that thrilled people, but even unsettled them. We saw Jesus' authority over demons or unclean spirits, how he could command them and they immediately obeyed. And we saw Jesus' authority over sickness. His ability to heal a variety of of diseases in an instant. And then in our sermon last week, we were mostly looking at Jesus' priorities. We saw that Jesus was intentional to make time for prayer, that he depended on God the Father through prayer. And we saw that even though Jesus had gained a massive following very, very quickly, through healing and casting out demons. And though he could very easily have continued to build that following and fame if he stayed in in Capernaum, his commitment was rather to keep moving from village to village and preaching far and wide. His commitment was to announcing that the kingdom is near because he, the king, is here. His commitment was to calling people to repent from their sins and believe the good news of who he is and why he has come. So, his priorities were depending on God the Father through prayer, seeking the Father's will through prayer, and seeking the strength to follow through with the Father's will rather than just doing his own will. And preaching the gospel far and wide prioritizing spreading the message over doing miracles, as popular as they were, right? So that people may be saved and eternally blessed rather than just helped physically for the here and now. And last week we also saw that Jesus had a popularity problem. We saw that Jesus had asked a leper who he had healed to not tell anyone. To not tell anyone. He was to go and report to the priests so that they could declare him clean. But other than that, he was not to tell anyone. And of course, this seems a little strange. Why, why would Jesus not want people to share of what he has done for them? Um, but we saw a case in point in last week's sermon as to why Jesus was making Uh, that request, giving that directive. Chapter 1, verse 45. But he, and that is the man who was healed from leprosy, he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. So you see, when this man spread the news about, uh, against Jesus' wishes, the news of what Jesus had done for him and cleansing him from his leprosy, 
Jesus then ended up being swamped with people who were coming to him looking for miracles uh, or expecting to see a show rather than people who were coming to him because they were looking for their Messiah. And of course, so many people, as the passage tells us, were coming to Jesus that it was even uh, difficult for him to travel freely and to teach freely. Roads were blocked with masses of people and he faced constant interruptions from demanding crowds. And that made it difficult for him to stick to his priority of preaching the gospel over doing miracles. So now that brings us to chapter 2 verse 1. And I've, I've referenced some of these things from the last two weeks because they play into our understanding of this passage today. Jesus has come back to Capernaum after a few weeks away preaching in other villages. And it says in Mark 2 verse 1, When he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. So we see the same dynamic here. Jesus is is popular Everybody wants to come and see Jesus. But in one sense, it does seem that Jesus' strategy of being away from Capernaum and going to some other towns and villages uh, for a while has worked. And that at least what's happening now is that this crowd that is gathered at the home, uh, the focus, as we see there, is that he is preaching the word to them. At least this crowd seems to be interested primarily in the word and not just looking for miracles. And then we see that a paralytic is brought to Jesus. A paralytic that refers to someone whose legs are paralyzed and can't walk. And this man is carried on a mat by four men. So this is not something someone with just a limp uh, or difficulty walking, but somebody who can't walk at all, who needs to be carried in order to get from one place to another. It's possible that uh, his paralysis might have even extended beyond his legs. Maybe his arms were affected or, or other bodily functions perhaps. But at the very least we know that to move from, from one point to another he needed to be carried. And his friends make an opening in the roof. This is this is a, one of those stories that I think most of us will uh, will remember from from Sunday school, and uh, it's, it's just such a vivid uh, picture, such a vivid scene. That Jesus is is in the house and he's teaching, and it's packed with people. And the outside of the house, there's people all around, and and they they can't get into the house to bring their friend to Jesus. So what was common in those days was that there would be a staircase along the side of the house on the outside. You could go up those stairs and then up to the roof. And these roofs weren't very permanent. They were uh, basically, you can imagine some wooden cross beams that would then be overlaid with a matting of reeds, thin branches, dried mud. The sort of thing that would have to actually be, be uh, pretty much replaced almost once a year or at least uh, be that regular maintenance to keep it leak-free. Um, at least once a year. So they come up to the roof and they start digging through uh, through this mud and, and, and reeds 
to make, create an opening. So it's a fair amount of work, um, but it's not as financially costly uh, to the homeowners as we might assume. It's, as I say, it's quite, quite temporary and needs to be pretty much replaced uh, regularly anyway. And then they lower him down on a mat. And the text doesn't specify how exactly they did this, but I imagine they would have tied ropes to the mat and then just lowered him down by those ropes very carefully all the way down to see Jesus. Now, what do we anticipate to happen at this point, right? Of course, we're anticipating physical healing. Physical healing is what we anticipate. But instead, verse, tell, verse 5 tells us that Jesus sees their faith and Jesus tells the paralytic man that his sins are forgiven. See, Jesus sees this man's greatest need and he addresses that need first. He sees his need to have his sins forgiven so that he can be reconciled to God. And Jesus forgives his sins. Now verse 6 tells us that the scribes react to this. So the scribes, these are uh, well-trained, official Jewish teachers of the law. The scribes react. Verse 6. Some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now it's a blasphemous to dishonor God by speaking of him as being ordinary or normal rather than perfectly holy and glorious. And similarly, we might dishonor God, blaspheme God by speaking as if others can do the things that only God can. So taking away from God's glory by speaking of others as if, as if they are able to do things that only He can. Since only God, as our Creator and our King, has the authority to forgive sins outright, these scribes accuse Jesus of blasphemy. And that makes sense, right? Think about that. I mean, I don't have the rights if somebody's done something wrong against you. I don't have the right to step in and say, okay, no, 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 you're forgiven, right? They haven't wronged me, they've wronged you. And the reality with God is that whoever else we sin against, we always sin against God, right? If I sin against Vincent, I also sin against God. He is our creator, he is our king, he is the one who has given us his law, he's the one who's made it clear to us how he wants us to live, And every time we sin, we sin against Him. So He is the only one who has the ultimate authority to forgive sins. And here these scribes get upset and say, He's talking as if He can do things that only God has the right and authority to do. How does Jesus respond to this? Verse 8, Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, he said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, 
or to say, rise, take up your bed, walk. Now we've talked about the fact that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man, but that Jesus needed to fulfill the mission God the Father had given him by living life as a man without making use of his divine attributes to cut corners or make things easier for him. But Jesus was also empowered by the Holy Spirit and thus able to do all these incredible miracles. So in this passage, it's not 100% clear. Did did Jesus read the minds of these scribes in in a supernatural sense, knowing their thoughts? Or simply through observing them closely, their facial expressions, their mannerisms, uh, and, and just being very perceptive and wise. Could he just tell what they were upset about um, and, and what they were thinking about? I'm not sure, but one way or another, Jesus could tell what they were thinking and why they were upset. And he challenges them. He, he speaks directly to them, boldly to them. Verse 9, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Now, of course, in one sense, it would be understood to be much, much harder to forgive sins. Everyone has been amazed at Jesus' healing, Jesus casting out demons. But what has upset the scribes here is the claim that Jesus can forgive sins because only God can do that. But in another sense, and this is what Jesus is uh, driving at, we can't see in the moment, right, with our eyes, we can't tell objectively if someone's sins have been forgiven. We can't see that. Jesus can say the man's sins are forgiven, but how do we know that he's actually accomplished this? In that sense, it is much, much harder, right? Much, much harder to say to the paralyzed man, rise, pick up your bed and walk. Because with that, the proof is going to be immediate. Either we can see it with our eyes or we can't people will be able to tell right away whether you're able to do what you said or not. So Jesus then says in verses 10 and 11, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Jesus essentially says, I'll prove to you That I can do the miracle that you can't see with your eyes by doing the miracle that you can see with your eyes. Notice at the beginning of verse 10. But that you may know. In other words, Jesus is telling us here why he is doing this other physical miracle. Why he is making this man able to walk. Now, of course, we we know that Jesus, he felt pity for the man with with leprosy. 
We know that he is full of compassion. We know that he does these miracles to bless people out of a concern for their suffering. But there's something bigger happening here. Jesus is doing this to show and prove that he has the power and the authority to forgive sins. He has the power and authority to do something that only God can do. And he proves exactly that in verse 12. And and he, that's the paralytic, he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Jesus says the harder thing to say the thing that would have to be proven, um, the, the, sorry, the thing that would have, the thing that would have proven that he was all talk and no power. Um, Jesus says that. He says that thing, sorry. Jesus says the harder thing to say, the thing that would have proven he was all talk and no power. He says it anyway because he knows he can follow through. He knows he has the power and the authority to, ha- to make this man stand, rise, right there in the moment, in front of everyone. Take up his bed and walk. He says it and it happens. The paralytic hears Jesus' command, immediately rises, picks up his bed and walks out before them all. Proof. Proof of Jesus' power and authority that no one could deny Now, how should we think about this passage? How should we apply it to our lives? I said at the beginning, two weeks ago, our sermon was on Jesus' authority. And here we see that Mark continues to build on that theme. We saw two weeks ago that Jesus taught the scriptures with unique authority. We saw his authority over demons, his authority over sickness. In our sermon last week, We saw his authority to make the unclean clean. Now today we've seen both Jesus' authority over paralysis, over disability, and his authority to forgive sins. Why is all this important? Especially this last one, this authority to forgive sins. I said right at the beginning of this sermon series that Uh, Mark would be showing us who Jesus is. He'd be showing us who Jesus is and how we should respond then in light of who he is. All these areas of authority are proofs of the fact that Jesus is no ordinary man. He is the Messiah, the Savior, the King, the perfect Son of God, who has been given the authority of God. Indeed, Jesus is God himself. And if we know who Jesus is, we must respond to who he is. We must repent of our sins and believe that he really is the promised Messiah, the promised rescuer and ruler, our Savior and our Lord. We must devote our lives to live for him and follow him. Another thing to notice 
is how this passage highlights once again that Jesus' priority is to preach the message of who he is and why he came. It highlights once again that our greatest need, what is most important, is the forgiveness of sins. I mean, think about this for a moment. Even if you were paralyzed to the point of needing to be carried around on a mat, you need forgiveness of sins more than you need the ability to walk. I urge you to see this. I urge you to recognize, if you're not a Christian, that your rebellion against God is serious. I urge you to see the sinfulness of your sin. I urge you to come to Jesus for forgiveness. To recognize that He, and only He, has the power and the authority to forgive your sins. And if you are already a Christian, if you are already someone who's turned from your sins and put your full trust in Jesus to save you, then I encourage you to remember this amazing truth every day. Right? Because sadly we tend to forget it. You might not be able to physically see that your sins have been forgiven. But if your faith is in Jesus, you have been forgiven. You have been reconciled with God. It's not just talk. Jesus does have the authority to forgive sins. And he has forgiven the sins of all who trust in him. All the sins of all who trust in him. And lastly, all these miracles Jesus has been doing also prove who he is in another way. See, it's not just that he has the power and the authority to do these things. It's that he is the promised king because he's showing us a foretaste of what his kingdom will be like once sin is conquered and all the effects of sin, all the effects of the fall, of the curse that sin brought on this world. He's showing us a foretaste of what it's going to be like when all of that is overturned, when he makes all things new. In the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no demonic oppression, there will be no sickness. No one will be unclean and alienated from society. There will be no paralysis, no disabilities. Why? Because our sins will be forgiven and we will be reconciled to God fully and have relationship with Him forever.